Welcome to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 60th episode on a most unusual but wonderful backdrop with the Singapore Harbor and skyline behind me. And the person who made this happen or requested for this to happen is none other than Sapnandu Mohanty, Chief Fintech Officer of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And the reason we have Sapnandu with us today is because today's podcast is about the burgeoning fintech scene in Singapore, which has expanded rapidly over the past half a decade or so. And Sofnendu, who has been the chief fintech officer for the last six years at MAS, has been at the forefront of all the development and the uh, maturation of this sector. So with that in mind, Sofnendu, welcome to Kopi Time. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be sitting, having this nice afternoon Look chat. That's what fintech is all about. Things get <laughs> exciting as it evolves. And I'm glad that after a few days of relentless rain, we've actually managed to bring the sun out in Singapore today for yes. this conversation to happen. Yes, it is good luck. Good, good time, good time for us now. So, Prindu, I began by saying that we will talk about Singapore's fintech sector, which has expanded a lot. Sure. Perhaps you can give us some sense of the magnitude of the pace with which the sector has expanded with respect to startups and fundraising and so on. The time of this, uh, yeah, this is a six-year journey for all of us. We started in 2015 in August, and we really didn't have a clear idea of where we are going to head to. But we knew that this is an exciting sector. If you get it right, despite our small size as a country, uh, in fact, the first six months when I was going around talking about fintech, what Singapore wants to do. Uh, there were uh, people who were looking at me saying, what fintech in Singapore? You have six million people, uh, what can we do there? Because then the fintech was all about large market size, unmet need, digitizing the sector, getting to a larger customer base. That's all about fintech and investors were excited about that. And we being small was a challenge for us. But in a way, constraint brings new opportunity we redefined what fintech stands for. In fact, we expanded the definition saying that wherever we can digitize, whether it is for a bank serving customer or a small businesses trying to get into financial services or trying to adopt financial services, anything can help to move that narrative is fintech for us. So that led to the birth of what you call as business to business fintech. And if you look Singapore in that six years journey, we have perhaps the largest number of B2B fintech in this market. Almost 80% of our portfolio are in the business of helping somebody to digitize faster. And that's the differentiation we created over six years. Now, many parallel tracks were opened then without a clear end, end game. We started developing human capital. I mean, how do we, you cannot get to fintech where tech is the underlying without the human resource you need to build those capacity and capability. So we put a lot of effort around building that human capital. Today we have 10,000 plus new net jobs got created in this sector. Uh, we are quite proud of that, that growth. Uh, growth capital, you need money to fund these new ideas. 2014, our number was close to 20 million US. Today, six year annual investment, last year was close to 1.2 billion. This year, by the by end of third quarter, we may touch billion dollar. So the growth, of the, the, the growth of growth capital has been tremendously encouraging for us. So that's the second piece. Third piece, what I call as community capital. 
you know, all this fintechs leverages bringing ecosystem together. We brought the whole global community together. One of the iconic product of ours was the whole Singapore FinTech Festival, which brings uh, 60,000 people globally from 130 countries every year to Singapore. And that has that network effect of throughout the year building this FinTech community. And the last part is the trust capital. It means uh, ultimately this is a regulated sector. It has to run on good regulation very trusted public infrastructure and that's what we have built over four five years public infrastructure thoughtful regulatory changes to make the sector a truly a growing vibrant inclusive sector so so now we have thousands of qualified people in singapore working on a variety of solutions that society needs and they're raising capital successfully uh, what about the journey from raising capital to becoming a company with sufficient scale or giving returns to investors, are we seeing that as well? Very good question, Timur, because um, typically when uh, a young companies start growing in this sector, start building the capital, one thing investors are looking when the exits will happen. And when you are new to this sector, when the environment is still forming, it's a very challenging to get that early exit. I think that's, that's, uh, that's the trend. We saw this year, an early part of last year, exits are coming. Secondary markets are getting created. Investors who put money are able to come out and start putting money back. You will see a couple of big born in Singapore, Unicorn, making the billion mark this year. The truly born, born bred in Singapore. So we're hoping that that, that kicks in the, the next level of capital coming, especially the investor coming out and reinvesting in this sector. Um, where is the capital coming from? Is it raised in Singapore or you see investors from China and the US? I think the large part is from outside, uh, outside investors. Uh, US, uh, definitely dominant, uh, a lot of VCs are from US. Uh, yeah, there are some multi, multinational collaborative construct uh, VC firms putting money. So quite a, quite a diverse uh, uh, multi-country, uh, multinational VCs investing in this sector. Um, I want to talk about some of the hats that you wear in MS, and yes. I know you wear many, many hats. Yes. So one of the hats you wear is the issue of regulatory policy and development strategies. So give us a sense of you know what sort of strategies are you involved in these days? Well, um, we always look to find where to fine-tune our regulation. The good thing in Singapore that last three to four years, all the necessary regulation we need to have or changes or improvement we need to have to make the sector work is already in place. Good example would be the Payment Service Act. It took us three to four years to put a, an activity-based expansive regulation and we are in implementation mode. So a lot of the regulations we have put are in implementation mode now. Example being the Payment Sectors Act, which is now companies are licensing themselves under this new regulation. We fine-tuned a lot of regulation around distribution of insurance. Uh, we, uh, we, are, we are in the process of getting banks to adopt the FEED principle, fairness, ethics, accountability, transparency principles, and the AIs being deployed. Uh, we are doing interesting experiment, and hopefully that also will have an impact on regulation on the CBDC pieces. And you know, we have an uh, iconic uh, project called Project Ubin, 
uh, we spent three to four years on that whole uh, program. And now we're on the verge of uh, getting into something big in the space. And uh, so, yeah, so regulation is in the implementation mode, I would say. But we have something exciting, which always keeps us, uh, in a way, uh, focused on what to change is our regulatory sandbox. If some new idea pops up, they go to the regulatory sandbox. When they come out, we look at where there's opportunity to fine tune further. On the regulatory side, there is also some multilateral initiatives in place around the world. Yes. So for example, Bank for International Settlement seems to be taking the lead right now in talking about best practices yes. and the core principles for CBDC, for example, or other issues related to privacy. Um, so what sort of uh, multilateral initiatives is the MAS involved in? In the one thing we did well, uh, Timur, is that we were quite uh, uh, progressive when it came, came to this whole idea of collaborating. We knew from day one, the success behind the sector comes from a very expansive, extensive collaboration. Our relationship with multilateral agencies, be it BIS, be it IMF, World Bank, IFC, is quite a, quite, quite a lot of thing going in that space. We collaborate on infrastructure, for example, foundational digital infrastructure. We, combine, we, co we collaborate with many, many countries in Africa, in ASEAN market. With BIS, we set up a hub uh, in Singapore, the BIS Innovation Hub. Uh, we do a lot, lot of our projects. Uh, we get uh, multilateral agencies to participate in the events uh, we do in Singapore. So, so, uh, so I think this, the idea behind the, that is that Singapore, uh, our idea is to go and have a mind share in the international community so that we get counted in what we think is the right way to build the sector. And, and that's the reason why the collaboration helps and we contribute our own part to that whole uh, partnership. Right, so from the official sector to the private sector. Yes. You, you want a competitive financial sector in Singapore, you want to promote innovation. Um, how are you doing that? A good example would be very recent one on the CBDC side. When, uh, the Ubin project, for example, it was an experiment. We got many tech companies, banks to participate for almost five, as a four or five years. And we always said to ourselves that we should not do experiment for the sake of an experiment. Everything we do, we must give it back to the commercial sector. Mm -hmm. And that example, that whole Ubin ended up in a company called Partio, where JP Morgan, DBS, Temasek invested and they're building their market infrastructure for CBDC, or the or not, not CBDC particularly, but digital currency. That's right. Commercial bank issued digital currency. What I'm trying to say is that whatever we do as an initiative, it has this multis, uh, uh, multiple uh, partnership from multi, whether it's from commercial sector, from tech sector, from banks or agencies. But ultimately, we have to hand over to the sector to take it and move forward. We are not in the business of running a business. We are a regulator, policymaker, facilitator of innovation. We want the, the, the commercial sector to actually pick it up and take it forward. And Pathia is a great example where a regulator-backed experiment translated to, an, uh, to a commercial entity backed by the banks. Correct. Uh, so that's how we have been doing, whether it is uh, uh, Pathia in the example, or there's another example will be the Proxterra on the business side, uh, on the business connectivity side. Whatever you do, it has to end with the commercial banks. The API exchange, is the commercial sector also doing a good job? In so the, the genesis of API exchange is interesting. 
In fact, uh, there's a funny story behind it. Uh, the, the reason why we created API Exchange was because I was getting bugged by one of a very senior person from a multilateral agency saying to me, look, uh, SOPS, we got to do something for uh, the emerging market and let's work together to introduce fintechs to them. The bank CEOs will like this, what I'm going to say. I told, you know what, maybe we should think differently. Instead of trying to introduce a new company called fintech into that sector, why don't we go and work with the banks and make them fintech in the emerging market? Because I draw, I drew for my own example. I told, look, I came from my home hometown, birthplace in India. The credit, the town credit bank, will know when a child is born in my house. They're so intimately in, connected to the families where they are serving. Imagine we go and introduce cutting-edge fintech solution to those banks, digitize them. Why you need a fintech to go and replace them? Apex was born out of that. An ability to bring emerging market banks closer to the fintech solutions, helping them to digitize faster, was the reason why we created Apex. It has taken its own journey. Today, we are very proud to say that the number of banks participating, fintechs, and stuff going on that platform is way beyond our imagination. It's going to grow further. And we are looking for exciting launches this year at the festival uh, of new features coming out of EP Exchange. But just to remind, that was built for the banks uh, so that they can digitize faster. Great, well, we're going to look forward to that. Um, when I uh, read your uh, LinkedIn profile, I was struck by the sentence that, again, among the many hats that you wear, is uh, developing public good for financial services. Yes. Uh, and I understand there's a series of initiatives that MAS has undertaken over years to develop that. Uh, walk us through that, please. Well, this was, a, uh, this was a, a kind of an idea championed by us. Uh, and the idea was that to truly make a, a build a digital economy, we got to think like a physical economy, that to, to, for a physical economy to succeed, you need roads, in, in airports, some physical infrastructure, public good, so that you know, the economy rides on that and builds, uh, builds on it. So what, is those, what are those equivalents in the digital economy? Is what was the initial frame of reference. So we came into this four foundational infrastructure, that we must have a trusted digital identity be it a corporate or an individual. That's almost like you are going to work with people whom you don't see. That's right. You need to trust something which is called the digital identity. And that has to be a public good, trusted. The second piece was the ID itself means nothing. The data associated with the ID must be also trusted. So we need a trusted data exchange, which allows the data, whether it's a public data or it is a private data, can be exchanged in a well-governed way so that you don't deal with the fake data which associated with an ID. So that trusted data action becomes second public good we thought is critical for a sector, digital economy. Third, I know you, I know the data which is associated with you is trusted, now you're going to move money. We need to have a trusted interoperable payment system. And the fourth one, which is perhaps most interesting is that we want to empower citizens with the power to consent, whom they share the data. So the consent architecture, consent system. So these are the four foundational 
public good is what we designed to uh, 2016-17. So we thought, let's go and build around this. Singapore uh, went in that whole foundational infrastructure from mine for you know the KYCPs, then pay now running on the That's faster right. payment system. SG Findex is the data exchange where banks can share data and see together the portfolio. And you think about it and you distill it, it all around, it best around these four principles, the four foundational need. And all of us know that the only way you can exchange data is through a sync pass. You only consent whom to send through your national ID. That's the construct of public good. Now that is not enough if you make your a country efficient. Now we have extended that to start talking about how to connect these four layers to other countries. And our first example was uh, we went live uh, two months back, uh, connecting to Thailand, pay now to prompt pay. Now just to quickly close that thought, why it's such a powerful uh, example. Before that, the cost of sending money, it's $100 to Thailand, was around $20 to $15 per $100. The fintechs were moving money at $8 to $9, and some could have gone larger price if it's not regulated. After the connection, we are now doing three to five dollars. For a for a poor person to send money back home, a three dollar, four dollar from fifteen dollar is a big, it's a big benefit. So connecting public good has this impact, and then you build application, fintechs on top of that. That's not our business. So that industry will build. I'm going to come back to the fintech scene in Singapore in a right. second. I just want to take a little detour because you were mentioning you know cross-border payments yeah, yes, and so on. So as you know, the Central Bank of Cambodia has this uh, banking yes. system yes. with which uh, Cambodians in the diaspora, they can send money home yes. and they're using a blockchain-based solution. How do you assess that initiative? First thing is, uh, I always say that people say uh, China or somebody has gone ahead in CBDC or, or in digital currency. My best example is Cambodia. And I don't know whether you know the backstory behind that. I do not. The, the backstory behind that, I can, I can say that with liberty because my dear friend was Ashton Governor, the, the lady behind this, uh, Madam Chire, uh, yes, she's the force behind this and she doesn't mind saying this backstory. The backstory was uh, that she, was, she put an RFP uh, for building a faster payment system. And when she saw the vendor quotation, she, she said, look, I can't afford this. I can afford to put so much money to build a faster payment system for Cambodia. What can I do differently? That's where she decided to go and build this blockchain-based digital currency issued by the commercial bank, backed by the National Central Bank, uh, National Bank of Cambodia, a payment system. And it, is, it runs on a, the very simple notion, like a digital cash moving from one device to other device. That's right. And the cost of that Domestic payment is perhaps a fraction of what they would have spent on building a faster payment system. To me, that's the beauty of using technology for the right purpose and for is the right fitment. Uh, and for us, I don't see any strong justification to build a retail CBDC because today, well, Pius will still complain that he still spent few cents, 12 cents for the transfer, but for consumer, it's free. It's free because three clicks, we move money, zero cost. Banks do pay uh, some, some money to run this, but broadly speaking, it's quite efficient. We don't need a retail CBDC in Singapore, but Cambodia is a different example. So, yeah, so what I'm trying to say, look, this is how the world is going to move. People are going to latch on to new technology, new way of doing things, if it suits their requirement. That's right.
Absolutely. And we need we need to learn to coexist, both the systems. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think you know, Sapran, I mean, the way you put it is is perfect illustration of why we don't see massive demand for a CBDC type solution in the U.S. Yeah. Where even if they are lagging some yeah. very frontier economies, you know, there isn't that much of a problem to solve in yes. terms of payment. Yes. Whereas a country like Cambodia, there was a real yes. problem to be solved. Yes. And technology enabled the solution. Absolutely. Yeah, and in many large countries also, when there's a uh, emergency need for disbursement of direct benefit transfer. Maybe that will help there. Yes. So As opposed to sending US Treasury uh, issued yeah, checks. Yeah, checks and you know, by yes. the money hits and come back, so you collect the money is like a long process. Right. You know, it it, it, it right. will not serve the purpose. Right. Uh, no, I mean, I think that was a classic example also in Singapore last year when the government wanted to provide assistance to the population. Yes. yes. They could do it near instantaneously. Yes, yes. Um, so coming back to Singapore, um, large companies dealing with accelerated financial disruption or tech disruption, it's okay, they have the resources to hire talent, buy tech technological solutions. But for SMEs, uh, it's it's a different ballgame. Their resource constraints are a little tighter. So how do you see SMEs dealing with digital disruption in Singapore? I think this uh, this has been a very difficult challenge for us. As you rightly said, there's a talent issue, there's a capacity issue, money, it is it costs to digitize. And digitization, unfortunately, doesn't happen like, a, it's not like one box you get into and you're digitized. It, it, is a, it is a process of unwinding the way you do things in a certain way to do things different, differently. Process changes, behavioral changes, where you connect systems. So SME, if you look at them in isolation, it looks like a tall order. But what we did uh, progressively, block by block, is to solve the foundational need. Let's solve, so first thing we solved is the whole payments the QR payments, you know, in banks through their own PLA, SMEs, they came through that whole digital transformation, they got SMEs to the platform. Once they got the ability to pay each other uh, through the digital network, the second focus was how to digitize their own processes. Then we had companies like Zero and all who digitized the accounting system, their own uh, human pay, uh, pay, the payroll system, uh, their tax reporting system. So we got a bunch of fintechs or tech companies, IMDA champion, who went and using some incentive digitized their processes. So that took us a couple of years and we're still in the process. Now you have digitized, let's say, uh, their ability to pay each other, receive money, send money, their processes. They need to do business. So now in the journey of putting these SMEs to a digital marketplace, and the good thing about this is that, and I, I, I heard from, my, uh, from somebody, when we say small, medium enterprise, it's actually a manifestation of physical size. Because when you think in a physical construct, a small means physically small business, a small shop house. But the idea is not small or medium. No idea is small, medium, big. Right. They're actually has got no physical definition. When they come to digital platform, when the physical constraints are taken away, the small idea, that idea can go to any extent. It can scale faster. So we are now trying to build a marketplace where these SMEs in a physical construct can run their idea on a digital, highly scalable network and start growing. And if we are lucky, I think we can end up in a very different outcome. And maybe we will eliminate the definition of called SME because they're actually uh, relevant in the physical world. No idea is small, medium, they're all big. And the capabilities that they can access would be the best in class. Uh, yes, the large yes, and they can scale that with the cloud computing, with the resources on demand, 
platform as services, the kind of technology coming, the cost of technology going down, they can super scale. But that journey is very painful. We have to go step by step. It's not something that happens overnight. Right. And I think that's, in a way, echoes, sometimes people are frustrated. They say that, you know, I see technology everywhere, but I don't really see the gains in profitability <laughs> yeah. or productivity. And I think the right response to that frustration is that the foundation has to be there. Yes, yes. So we're making foundational progress. Yes, yes. Once it's there, one can yes. be reasonably optimistic about yes. quick take up. Yes, I think that's why it starts with talent, technology and transformation. And that's the sequence. That's right, that's right. Uh, so Pnendu, climate change is an issue that affects everybody. But uh, an island like Singapore, rising sea levels and glo changing global temperature are all existential yes. questions. It's not just a theoretical construct for us. Um, financial technology, climate change, how are they intersecting? Well, uh, it was a opportunistic, uh, I would say, move from our side. We were looking at one of the report and uh, that report said that 80% of data for a bank, what we need to make a computation on climate side is actually sitting outside the financial world. And they're actually sitting in a lot of fintechs, payment systems, who, where you spend your money, what you, where, how you travel, all this rich data set is sitting with the e-commerce platform, the payment companies. If fintechs are holding this data set about all of us, and you all are going to collectively make some choices to, to make the world sustainable, fintech could be a fantastic plugin to this whole narrative to provide two things. The data you need to incentivize people to change the behavior. And third, how do you measure after you incentivize them either through lending or through, your, through, uh, through incentive that they're actually changing. They can help you to measure the behavior. They can also help you to measure the impact and monitor the behavior. So FinTech with this, with this current tech architecture tools, the way they, they do things, can be a great plug to the uh, finance agenda, the green finance agenda as a tech stack for driving that. How to mobilize capital, how to measure the impact, how to monitor the progress. That's where the FinTech plug came in in the climate change uh, agenda. And we are moving forward. We hope to see in this year, at least the marketplace will be out. And let me give you a quick, quick minute on that. Uh, let's, let's see how to frame this, uh, this problem statement here. For somebody to shift their behavior to consume less energy or uh, uh, adhere to climate uh, uh, change requirement, they need a lot of change within their own structure, whether new tools, new solutions, and these are called green solution. And we looked around, the new ideas and startups seen in this space lacks a lot of capital. And that's not only thing, they also lack implementation opportunity. For example, if somebody has come with an alternate protein as a way to address the climate issue due to the bad consumption we do, food consumption, and alternate protein is the way to go, one thing you need money to fund such research and such startups who can build alternate protein, Second thing, you need an environment where they can test the product, you need regulatory approval to even allow that product to be consumed. So Singapore, I think for us, we thought this is an excellent uh, opportunity for us to contribute. We can be the place to raise, to allow this kind of company to raise capital. We can provide the uh, environment for them to test out this product. Then we have a vibrant uh, financial center, which can then be plugged in 
to provide the, uh, the finance required moving from brown to green assets. So bringing all the three forces together was the uh, uh, way to go for this whole green fintech. Okay, um, maybe a lighter side question yes. related to what you just said. Um, I am an entrepreneur, I'm excited about climate change, I'm thinking about a food-related solution. Um, do I basically have to go to the internet and find uh, chat sites where I find like-minded people in Singapore? Or there are places I can go hang out like the way uh, entrepreneurs do in Palo Alto or in Silicon Valley? <laughs> no, no, you know what, uh, Goody brought this point. In fact, uh, as COVID came in, um, we all st get stuck in this, uh, wherever we are. and. And one thing stuck to me that we got to create a Palo Alto hangout place in Singapore, wherein when whenever I visit Palo Alto, Palo Alto you know the street from Stanford, Stanford Main University street. Main Street, and they say me, no, you know what? Any evening you hang out one of those uh, wine bar, you may bump into an investor or a future uh, billionaire because they're cutting deals. Uh, so then I thought, why can't we do that in Singapore? Why can't we create a street where all the startup uh, founders, the, the team the investors hang out and have some social connectivity. So we just launched a Singapore FinTech Club. Uh, it, the idea is to build a, a social hotspots uh, in the Robinson Street today and also streets nearby, bring the community together. And the question asked, if you're thinking to raise capital, wait for a couple of months, hang out, hang out in one of those bar or restaurant in the Robinson Street, you will find uh, some investor who is interested to talk to you. So we are getting there, and I'm hearing reports that after we launch the club, a lot of people are hanging out and coming together to have dinners together. Of course, during COVID constraint, once things get normal, we can get there. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing the evolution of Robinson Street and Amoy Street and those areas <laughs> yes, yes. accordingly. That would be interesting. Um, this brings me to the issue of human capital. Yes. Uh, at the beginning of this conversation, you said that over 10,000 net jobs created in the fintech sector over the last half a decade. How is Singapore shaping up in terms of training, developing, nurturing fintech talent? Uh, well, uh, when it comes to training for technology, it's a very binary skill set. You know, either you know how to code, you don't know. <laughs> There's nothing called you are progressing in a soft. In a, you know, it's, it's the, that's the challenge in this whole space. That when it comes to technology training, very close to binary in the skill set. You either know it or don't know it. So uh, it was a tough uh, uh, challenge for us to start creating a broader uh, technology upskilling for not only for creating new tech workforce, but also repurpose, reskill existing workforce in the financial sector. And uh, we started through many doors uh, how to get there. We went to the universities uh, upgraded the curriculum so the future workforce get ready for the new demand. We went to the polytechnics and perhaps one of our uh, best quoted example uh, when it comes to talent development, the way polytechnics adopted the whole skill upgrade. And every polytechnic today has a, has a strong program on tech, 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 up, tech uh, curriculums, tech upgrades, and FinTech is part of the core uh, thing they teach now. And then with our IBF, um, uh, uh, Institute of Banking and Finance, we created programs for mid-highest uh, uh, staffs and uh, FIs, how to create a program for them to upgrade their skill set. 
So that's why it got distributed in terms of different people focusing different uh, segment and trying to upskill that uh, the workforce. It's still a work in progress. And uh, the good thing, the demand for tech jobs has outstripped the supply we have today, which is a good thing. You just want demand to be bigger than your supply. And uh, uh, that also says that uh, how much we can, how many people we can train and bring them to the sector. Of course, there's a limit to how many people we can train because Singapore is a small place. We do rely on global talent to fit in wherever we need to. But I think in, when it comes to FinTech, Timur, I must say, is one of the most balanced, well-trained, and, and the growth and the, and the progress has been something we all feel very good about. And uh, of course, there's a lot of things, uh, still a long way to go, I would say. But uh, just pick one example, the blockchain talent space. We have built a tremendous bench strength on people who can design code on blockchain, which is not that two years back. Uh, so things like that makes us feel proud and also feel quite confident we can build a future workforce which can fit into the digital economy. When we talk about local talent development, um, do you think that Singapore has what it takes to retain the talent or they might fly off to China or Korea tomorrow with a better job offer? We don't, look, uh, and this is, this is, I don't know, there's a good answer or a bad answer. Look, fintechs we have in Singapore are not only serving Singapore market, they're serving the global market. We want them to serve global. How can you make a unicorn in Singapore unless they serve Indonesia? Exactly. Unless they serve India, China, Thailand, they must serve this market to be a unicorn. So if these companies born out of Singapore, bred in Singapore, are hiring local talent, we expect our local talent to be part of that journey as they serve this market in that market. So by design, by the need, by the force of it, it will happen. I'm so riveted by that possibility because I mean that sort of opens up a, a huge era of you know mobility yes. and skills acquisition yes, and yes. and you know broadening one's sphere beyond just working for banks. Yeah. So <laughs> indeed, well, indeed. Even banks can also export talent and uh, and build that uh, holistic uh, leadership because one thing we want to do at time this is what I've been telling every now and then. Inclusion, empathy is something we have to build as part of a character, especially world is thinking about green, sustainability, social cohesion. And if we don't bring it as part of our work culture and not understand the space around us, it's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is no room for being insular, sitting in this small island. Yes. Uh, the interdependency that we have, I think yes. the last year and a half has been glaringly exposed yes, yes, yes. to all of us. Um, finally, Sapnandu, looking at the future, uh, you are looking at you know pipeline of potential developments in technology. Which frontier technologies do you find exciting, and and what's your prognostication for what's to come? <laughs> you know there are three things we uh, we believe the future of financial services will head to. We, we may be wrong. Uh, one is the finance is going to embed outside finance. They're going to embed in a health sector. They're going to embed themselves in a in an e-commerce platform. They're going to embed inside the travel sector what we call fancifully embedded finance. So there's a, there's a set of technology which is going to drive that. The second we believe will be decentralized finance, where financial product becomes self-sufficient. The DeFi's, there's a digital ID, there's a rule, there's a, there's a regulation built into that piece of software, and it is, a, it is an exchange of value and exchange of contract ownership. So that's the second piece. 
And the third piece would be the whole shift to the green finance and the whole pa anything we do must be underpinned by this green agenda. And that's the, the third piece to the whole uh, different characteristics of future finance. And all these three will be backed by what we call as Web 3.0. What is Web 3.0? There are a few technologies which are going to change the way we think internet today. The difference would be AI, machine learning, endpoint computing, IoT devices, distributed ledger, quantum computing, or, or a faster computing uh, 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 infrastructure, they all will come together. So anybody is going to write the future software, they're going to take all this Web 3.0 component and build a solution which is not only transferring information, also transferring value, also transfer, uh, transferring ownership. And they will be either embedded in something or they'll be standalone decentralized finance. So that's, I think, the future will look like. If you have one technology to pick, if that's a question you have, I would say people should continue to build their skill set on the distributed ledger technology. Irrespective of, you can, you can question the speed, all this thing, but that's fascinating because the power to distribute and run in a, in a trust, in, instead of a trusted central structure, just makes me so, makes the topic so fascinating and seductive. Absolutely, and, and the intersection of digital space on the distributed ledger and climate change related solutions like a digi yeah. tokenized carbon yeah. credit yeah. Uh, is it's a perfect example of a convergence. And, and also you must also understand there's also a, not in a pleasant way I'd say, countries do realize that the future is digital economy and the gold mine and the gold equivalent is data. You will see much, lot of data protection getting stuck within many countries, so data localization. The only way you can connect the dots is to decentralizing processing. So you need this technology, this construct, so that you can get over this data nationalism or data protection, because the, depending on which, which side you are, you can justify it. Right, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating and a tantalizing moment. Uh, so Prindu, thank you so much for your time. We learned so much talking to you. Thanks for having me, and uh, it was a wonderful afternoon, and I hope uh, our viewers are going to have some good uh, takeaway. I'm sure they will. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Thanks for watching us and listening to us. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Martin Tucky and was also receiving assistance from Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee. All episodes of Kopi Time are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on Amazon and Google. Uh, as far as our research products are concerned, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day. <laughs>